chapter 4. And if you need a Bible to follow along with us, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so that you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, then just keep the one that's handed to you. Make that your own. You can write in it, mark it up, highlight it, underline it. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of three sermons that were given by Moses to the second generation of Israelites that had come out of Egypt during the last month of Moses' life on earth. And as we are in chapter 4 tonight, we find ourselves at the end of the first sermon that Moses is delivering to the people. Now, every sermon has three basic tenets. First of all, there is always observation. That is something that you are using as your substance, what you are setting forth as the backdrop for the purpose of your speech, what you're observing. So there's observation. After observation comes interpretation, which is just answering the question of what does that mean? And then after answering the question of that, what, what, you know, what does that mean, comes part three, which is the application. That is, what does this have to do with my life? How does what you said and then what you explained affect my life personally? And so you have those three basic tenets in any sermon, observation, interpretation, and then application. So in the first three chapters that we've studied thus far up to this point, chapters 1, 2, and 3, what we have seen is the observation portion of Moses' first sermon. And now, as we get into chapter 4, we get parts 2 and 3 of Moses' first sermon, that is, the interpretation, or what does it mean, and then the application of how does it affect our life. So Moses is going to bring it home tonight uh, as we're in chapter 4, as we prepare for what he's going to say next as we get into chapter 5 and you know further into the book of Deuteronomy. So if you're here with me, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses speaks and he says, now therefore, pause with me. I know that you're thinking it's going to be a long night. <laughs> Whenever you see these words, now therefore, let it be for you a clue or an indication that he is tying two things together. Two things are being tied together. That is, that which was previously said is now being tied to what is about to be said, what he's going to bring up next. Now, I already shared with you that chapters 1, 2, and 3 were the observation or the substance of the sermon, the body of it, if you would. So what was the observation that Moses held up for the people to see as he's now about to interpret and imply? Well, very simply, we saw that in chapter 1, Moses rehearsed the history of the first generation and how they failed to obey God, they were disobedient, and thus they failed to enter into God's promise for their life, and they wasted their existence. So chapter 1 is failure based upon disobedience to the word of God. Then in chapters 2 and 3, which we looked at last week, we saw the second part of that, which is the next generation now of Israelites obeying God's word and thus succeeding in the thing that God had laid before them and, and on the cusp of entering in now to all that God has for them. So the second portion, chapters 2 and 3, is success that is the byproduct of obedience to God's word. So you have failure that results from disobedience to God's word in chapter 1 and you have success and blessing that's attached to obedience to the word of God in chapters 2 and 3. And now he ties that 
to what he's about to say here in chapter 4 with these two very simple words, now therefore. Now therefore, in light of all that you've heard thus far, he says this, hearken, O Israel. That means listen. You might circle that or underline it or highlight it in your Bible. Hearken. It means to lean in and listen carefully with the intent to heed what you're about to hear. Hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you for to do them. That is, listen with the intent to obey or to do or to keep the things which you hear. That, he says, you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, your, uh, the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. In light of everything you've heard me say thus far, Moses says to the people, now listen and do the things which you hear that you might live and that you might possess all that God has for you. Do you know that that's the intent of God for each one of our lives? When he tells us to do something, when he gives us something to obey, the reason for those commands or those guidelines or those boundaries that he sets before us are not to restrict us. They're not to impose a religious sanction upon us, but rather they're put there because God wants to see us do the very best that we can do in our lives. And so his intent is that we might live in the fullest sense of the word and that we might possess all that he's planned for our lives, but he knows that we can't do that unless we first listen and do the things that he tells us to do. He goes on in verse 2 to say, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Now, this is a constant theme that runs throughout the Bible, the importance of preserving and keeping and adhering to all the counsel or the full counsel of what God said. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul wrote to his young disciple Timothy, and he said these words. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for it, you know, instruction, reproof, rebuke, and exhortation so that the person of God, I know it says man of God, but it means the disciple of Christ, the person who's a follower of God, might be perfect. That means thoroughly furnished, complete, and furnished fully for every good work. That all scripture is given God breathed to us so that we can be complete and full in what we need to live lives that are fruitful and full. That's the will of God for our lives. And thus, he's given us all of his counsel, all of scripture. And that means the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, that all of it is given by God and all of it is useful to bring our lives to the place where God can do for us what he wants to do for us. When Paul was in Ephesus for the final time, and he had the elders of Ephesus gathered on the shore of Miletus, and he spoke to them about the ministry that he had enjoyed among them, and then commissioning them for the future that they had without him, he spoke to the elders there, and he said this. He said, to his own commendation, he said, for the space of three years, I have not ceased to give to you the full counsel of God. He said, while my badge, my resume, my boasting that I will make of the time I had with you is that while I was there, I gave you the full counsel of God's word. I left nothing out of it. That's why we here at the church venture to go through the whole Bible as we you know, venture together towards heaven as a church. From Genesis to Revelation, line upon line, precept upon precept, leaving nothing out. Why? Because of the importance of having the full counsel of God's word. That keeps us from becoming unbalanced. From having an emphasis on something that maybe, you know, is good and true, but it's, it's too much. It's not in right proportion. It keeps us from having pet doctrines or kind of an, a, a typecasted approach to church or to Christianity. 
It, it, it ensures that what we get as a congregation is the entire counsel of what God has to say in the perfect amount and in the perfect proportion to how he gave it to us. And the result of that is that we're going to lead fruitful lives. But we have to be those that take the full counsel of God's word. We can't pick and choose what we want, and we can't add to God's word what is said to make it what we want to say. How do people add to or diminish from the word of God? Well, first of all, by assumption. Well, I just feel like God is this way. And it doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what pastor so-and-so says. I just feel like this would be an attribute of God, and so that's what I choose to believe about God. Well, you're adding to the word of God if that, in fact, is not something that the Bible teaches, you know. So by assumption. Also, you could add to the word of God by tradition. Jesus indicted the Pharisees and Sadducees constantly on this point, that they elevated and revered the traditions of men higher than the revelation of God. And thus, Jesus indicted them. He said, you do transgress the word of God through your tradition, and you set the doctrines of men higher than the word of God. And so tradition can be a way that people can add to the word of God. And then the third way that people can add to or subtract from the word is just by omission. And I think this is the one that can hit us closest to home. And that is this, is that we simply ignore certain parts of the Bible. Or we ignore certain attributes of God that maybe we don't like as much or that don't, you know, sit perfectly in our understanding of what we think, you know. And so we can be guilty of diminishing. Notice he doesn't say use the word subtract. He uses the word diminish. That's on purpose. Because to diminish means to just shy away from something. It's not to cut it out completely, but just to step back from it or ignore it as though it doesn't exist. But here's what happens if you add to or subtract from the word of God. Your concept of who God is, your knowledge of the person of God who created you becomes skewed and wrong. And that will always affect your behavior and your lifestyle, the way that you live. Moses gives an example of that in verse 3. Notice with me. He says, your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. Now what he's talking about is the incident surrounding the man Balaam. If you've been around the Bible at all, you've heard of Balaam and the talking donkey, you know. Balaam was a prophet, but he was kind of a strange, he was not a Jew. He was, you know, a Moabite or a Gentile. And in, in some way he was, you know, gifted by God. He somehow knew God in some weird way. But, but yet, you know, the, the story was that Balak, the king of Moab, wanted the people of Israel cursed. And so he hired Balaam to curse them. He, he wanted his own personal profit. And so he tried to pay Balaam off to stand and give a curse and lay a curse upon the children of Israel. But every time Balaam would lift his hands to prophesy, only blessing came out. And, and three times Balak was enraged by Balaam's blessing. And he said, hey, I'm paying you to curse these people. And he said, well, I can't say anything except what God puts in my mouth to say. And that's what's there. And, and, and I have to say what God put in my heart. You say, well, why is that a curse? Why is Balaam spoken of so roughly? Here's why. Because what Balaam did is that then he went behind the cleft with Balak, the king of Moab. And he said, look, I can't curse them because God has blessed them. But if you really want them cursed, here's what you do. Tell your ladies to dress seductively and to move in and go in and seduce the men of Israel and tell them to come into their tents with them and show them the way that you worship your idols in Moab. And it was very sensual, very sexual in nature. And so Balak said, ha ha. And Balaam said, cha-ching, because he got paid, and, and Balaam, Balak, got what he wanted, and he did just that. He sent the Moabite women in, they seduced the men of Israel, and though God would not curse or cut off his people, yet, because they transgressed the ways of God, 
They brought the judgment of God upon the congregation, and it cost them the lives of 24,000 people. And and, and here's what Moses is talking about here in verse 3, the incident of Baal Peor. Here's why. They ignored the statutes, the commandments, the laws of God, and it affected their behavior, and they went after what they wanted to do in their flesh rather than what they knew they should do based upon the will of God because of who is God, and it brought a curse upon them. It brought destruction. And so they diminished from the word of God. They gave themselves permission to indulge in the accursed thing, and it brought destruction upon them. And Moses is bringing that to their attention here as it concerns this concept of adding to or taking from the word of God. So those that disobeyed were destroyed. But notice in verse 4, he says, But you that did cleave unto the Lord your God, you that didn't follow after Balaam's counsel and go after the Moabite women, you that clove to <laughs> stuck with the Lord, you are alive, every one of you, this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land whither you go to possess it. And so Moses here interprets everything that he had spoken in the first three chapters. And if you sum it up into a single sentence, what was the theme now of Moses' sermon or the interpretation of the history that he's laid out before them? It is this, to be careful to keep and to do the word of God. That is the theme of what Moses is saying to them in its totality. Be careful to keep and to do the word of God. Well, he moves from the interpretation of what he's laid before them to now the application. Well, what does that mean? What does it look like? And so in the remainder of the chapter, Moses gives to them now three blessings that are attached to those that keep the word of God, followed by three warnings towards those that don't keep the word of God. And then he gives them one conclusion uh, at the end of it all, summing up the thoughts and bringing the plane in for a landing, uh, something that I have a lot of trouble doing. He was 120. He had a few years on me, you know. So what does he do in verse 6 now as he applies this? He says, keep therefore and do them. He says, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The first blessing that's attached to those that keep and do the word of God, he says that it is your wisdom, that this is your wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing the best thing to do. That's very simple. That's what wisdom is. Every day we're faced with choices. We have decisions that we have to make, turns that we have to take in our lives. Things come at us, and every day is filled with decisions. Well, a wise person is a person that makes the best decisions when decisions need to be made. And what Moses is saying is that if you're a person that gives heed to the word of God and is careful with your life to do what God says, then that's going to be for you wisdom. You're going to make the best decisions and the best choices in the things that are set before you when you do what God says. Now, that fills my heart with joy and relief. And here's why. Because it means to be wise, I don't have to be smart. I don't really have to be intelligent or know a lot of stuff or be strong. None of that means all I have to do to be wise is obey. All I have to do is do what God tells me to do, and and, and it ensures that it will be my wisdom, even to the point, Moses says, that the other nations, those that are around you, will look in and say, what kind of people is this that have this kind of wisdom? Where do they get that kind of wisdom? How can they always know the best thing to do that they always come out on top? Very simple. Just do what God tells you to do. It's your wisdom. He he moves on, and he says in verse 6, he says, Uh, Verse 7, rather, he says, For what nation is there so great 
who hath God so near unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. The second thing that, that you get is your benefit, your blessing, is being a person who keeps and does the word of God, is that you have the nearness and the presence of God with your life. That you have someone watching your back and paving the way before you as you go. That when you call upon him, he answers you. That when you give your prayer, God's there with open ear to listen and respond and to help. He says, call upon me and I will answer you. And not only does he answer, but he speaks to us. Isaiah tells us that you will hear a word in your ear saying, this is the way, walk in it. And again, to the point where people look and say, how is it that God can be so much with that person? It's very simple. Just do what God tells you to do. This is your nearness to him his presence with you, his help in your life, evidently set forth so in the eyes of those that watch. And then number three in verse eight, and he says, and what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Number three is your greatness, is that you will be exalted, elevated, and made great before the Lord, but also before men. Now, this was true for Israel. Israel was an exalted nation. They were surrounded by idolatry on every border, idolatrous nations, and they got to see as God elevated and blessed and lifted them up, and the other nations were diminished and, and impoverished, really, and diseased and dying off, you know. But Israel was elevated. We've seen that in our own nation, our country founded upon the principles of God's word. Bible studies and prayer meetings held in those early days when our constitution was framed and the statutes and judgments that would govern our nation were established. And what have we seen? We've seen a nation that's elevated and blessed and lifted above every other nation upon the earth. Why? Because we give heed to the word of God, to the ways of God. And any nation or any individual that makes the word of God the standard for their life, not just in profession, but in action, is always going to be a few notches above everybody else, whether it be a nation or whether it be an individual. Because why? Because they give themselves to obey the word of God. And so he says, this is your wisdom, this is the presence of God with you, and this is your greatness and your exaltation as a nation, also as individuals. Now, to have this kind of life, Moses is not talking about just a Bible-toting people. He's not saying to them, well, this is all you do, is you just get a Bible, and you put your name in the front cover, and then you fill in the family tree information that you see there, and then you bring it with you every time you go to synagogue or temple or church, and, you know, and take little excerpts and put them on your refrigerator or you know, frame them and hang them in the bathroom so that you see. He, he's not saying that. That's not what he's talking about is just professing or possessing. But rather, he's talking about diligently hearing with the intent to do and to keep them. And what he's talking about here is a life, not a profession, not an ideal, but a life that's lived in adherence and in obedience to God's word. That's what he's talking about. And that takes a lot more than a profession, a lot more than just something that we say or somewhere we go a couple of times a week, but it's a life that's given. So he follows these three blessings with three warnings now. He says in verse nine, he says only now, in light of this, only take heed to yourself and keep thy soul diligently lest you forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. Take heed to yourself and keep yourself diligently, lest at any time you should forget the things that you've heard, and lest they, he says, depart or leak from your heart. The writer of Hebrews says something very similar in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we ought to take the more or give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. In the New King James, it says, drift away, and it means the same thing. 
And I don't know about you, but that's what happens to me, is that I could put something in, and I could observe it, and I can interpret it, and I can apply it, but if I don't keep myself diligently fixed to it, then what happens over time is that it begins to leak out. I drift away from those truths. They go from the forefront to the midfront to the back, you know, and, they're, uh, and, and then they're gone, you know. So, so what's he saying to them in this warning, this warning that he's giving to them? He's saying this. He's saying, be careful that you don't forget. Don't forget the word of God. And that is always going to be the tendency. That's why he says, lest they depart from you. So how do we keep that from happening? I mean, God's commandments are always his enablements. When he tells us to do something, he always tells us how to do it and gives us the ability to do it. So how do we keep that from happening? How can we, as the people of God, keep the word of God as the anchor of our lives and not from going off into something else? Well, very simply, first of all, is that you've got to stay in it. You cannot expect that the word of God is constantly going to be the, 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 the path and the light of your life if you're not constantly being filled with it. That's why he says there, take heed to yourself and keep thy soul diligently. Because responsibility number one for you and for me is that we be constantly being filled with the word. I love the analogies that the Bible gives to itself. It likens itself unto food. How often do we eat food? Constant. How often do we think about food? Constant. What motivates us to want to do things that otherwise we won't want to do? Oh, there's going to be food there. Of course, George, I want to go to the parent, your parents, you know, or something, you know. And, and, and I mean, why? Because it's something that's constant. It's a constant infusion. It's also likened unto living stones or something that you would build with. And I like this. Because the Bible is like that in our lives, is that it's always building upon itself. The stuff that we read yesterday is the foundation for what we read today and what we'll read tomorrow. And it's constantly like that forever and ever. The word of God constantly grows and our understanding of God exponentially expands the more we fill ourselves continually with his truth. It also tells us, the Bible does, that these words are alive, that it's a living book. But the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what that means is that you could read a verse that you've read a hundred times, but yet for some reason on that hundred and first time that you read it, it comes to life and you see it in its perfect place and you understand it in a way that you just missed it, the first 100. And at that moment of your life, it's the perfect thing what you needed to hear at that specific time. So it's living. But all of those things point to the fact that the word of God is something that we don't just read once and then put on a shelf and say, it's in there, I got it. But rather, it's something that we must take heed to ourselves and keep ourselves diligently in the word of God. It's got to constantly be written upon our life. So that's number one, is that we have to read it. But that's not the only thing that we must do lest we forget. Number two is that we should also Share it often. Notice what he says at the end of verse 9 there. He says, but teach them to thy sons and to thy sons' sons. The second thing that you can do practically to keep yourself from forgetting, to keep the word from departing, is to share it constantly with other people. He uses the example of your kids and your grandkids. I like that. If you share the word with your kids and with your grandkids, then you lose the possibility of it skipping a generation. Because even if your son is a deadbeat, you're still going to get your grandkids after them, you know? And so it will keep going, you know? So teach them constantly. I can't tell you that, well, I can tell you, the best, the best revelations that God has given to me in the word have come on the bedroom floor of my kids' room. Sitting there with them, never, never prepare. I never highlight. I don't do this, you know, when, when I'm, I just open up wherever we're at. And I just, and, and sometimes I'm amazed. I say, well, Lord, why don't you give me this stuff on Wednesdays, you know? <laughs> this is good, you know? And, and I'm telling you, I've learned more of him from teaching my kids than I have from any other single thing that I have done in my life. 
And there is something that God honors about sharing the word of God. You know, just yesterday, I, I, I took my son and uh, my son's friend to this wrestling practice. They're, they're, they're doing, a brother here in the church is uh, teaching some kids some wrestling stuff and then giving them a devotion at the end. And he roped me in. He said, hey, uh, I'm good at the wrestling stuff, but not so much with the devotion stuff. Do you mind doing that part, you know? Now, again, I, I didn't have time to prepare anything for that. And so here's what happened is I'm driving last night to the thing with my son and his friend, and I'm just talking to them about what they did during the day, and we got on the subject of the Bible. So I said, oh, I said, so what, did you, what are you learning in, in the Bible? In your thing? And we start talking about Scripture, and I start explaining to them the things. And you know what happened? The Lord gave me the devotion that I was going to share, and it ended up being the, the, the perfect thing for me and for them. You know, but how did it happen? It happened as I took the opportunity to talk about the Word of God with the little guys in the back seat. See, when you talk about the Word, it reinforces the truth of it in your own heart and in your own mind. So don't just read it constantly, but talk about it constantly. Number three, lest you should forget and lest it should depart from you, is to make church a priority. Watch this. Notice in verse 10. He says, specially, specifically, the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth and that they may teach their children. And so notice that God gives special mention to the assembly of all of the people where they will collectively hear the word of God together. And that's number three, the third part of this exhortation of not forgetting. Don't let it depart from your heart. Not only feed yourself constantly, Share it as often as you can, but also do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Make church a priority. To be in the place where you're hearing and learning the scriptures with the family of God. And, and two things are going to happen when you do that. The word of God is going to be dwelling in you richly because you're hearing it. But also you're going to find yourself equipped to share it with your kids or with the people around you. That's what he says at the end of verse 10, that they may teach their children. And so make church a priority. Don't miss the Bible studies when they're going on. Don't say, well, I'll, I'll pick it up later or I'll you know, get around to it or I'll get the CD or, or something. But no, 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 this is a priority in my life. I need this for everything else that I do in my, in my whole world. And so I'm gonna make it a priority. You say, okay, well, wait a minute. Not every church is doing what you're describing, teaching the word. So how do you know what kind of church you're supposed to be at? Is it the religiousness of just going, saying, okay, God, I showed up this week. Is that what it's about? No, no, no. Notice the description that Moses now goes on to give about what happened when they gathered. And in it, we get some insight. Notice verse 11. Uh, he says, and you came near, and you stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven with darkness, or well, yeah, clouds and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but you saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant which he commanded you to perform even 10 commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither you go over to possess it. There's three marks that he gives here. Three buzzwords, if you would, that indicate the kind of thing that was taking place in the assembly that made it productive. Number one, he says there was fire. Fire in the Bible is always a symbol or a picture of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said just prior to the ministry of Jesus, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, he says, there cometh one after me that is preferred before me. The latchet of his sandal I'm not worthy to unloose. 
He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. When the Holy Spirit came upon those initial 120 on the day of Pentecost, it says it was in the form of a cloven tongue of fire upon their head. Fire, always a symbol of the Holy Ghost. So a church where you're going to be built up and blessed should always be a church where the Holy Ghost is present. You say, now wait a minute. What does that look like? Well, let me tell you. You have to learn how to speak in tongues. Because that is obviously the sign that you have the Holy... How can you know? No, 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 no. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is what? That is the thing that evidences the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in an assembly of people, is that there is love. Not that people, wow, hula hoops and dancing bears and flags and smoke. No, 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 no. It's love. You You can fake all of the other things. You can't fake love. Real love, unfeigned, unhypocritical love can only be given by the Spirit. Why? Because the Bible says that God is love. And so a church where God is elevated and he is moving will always be a church where the people love each other, where there's real love evidenced in the body. The second word there that he uses, well, the the concept is in verse 12. He says, you heard the voice of the word. You heard the word. A place where the word of God is elevated. The Bible says that he exalts his word above his name. His word is so important. It's the thing that holds our lives together. It's the thing that Moses is challenging them unto. And so church should always be a place where the word of God is upheld. And then number three there in verse 13, it said, and he declared unto you his covenant. Now for them, the covenant was the law, the Ten Commandments. He says that there in verse 13. But for you and I, there's a new covenant. It's called the gospel. The days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And they'll no longer say, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, and I will pour out my spirit upon them in those days, says the Lord. And so we've been given this gospel, this message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that we can be saved not by the works of righteousness that we do, but by what he accomplished on the cross and imparts to us freely the gift of his grace. It's the gospel. And so a good church, a good place where you're going to be grounded and fed and built up is a place where the covenant, the gospel is preached. The message of salvation is given. So the presence of love, the teaching of the word, and the presentation of the gospel. That's what they got, and that's what Moses upholds. And he says, listen, lest you should forget, and these things should depart from your heart, be in the word constantly. Share it with others as often as you can, and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Be in a church that is spirit-filled, word-rich, and gospel-preached. Those are the priorities. He says, that will, lest these things depart from you. Don't let that happen. Why not? Well, here's number two. The second warning, if you would, in Moses' uh, string of three warnings here in verse uh, 15. Notice here, he says, take ye therefore, Good heed unto yourselves. And and that's how you know this is a new warning. This is the second time he's saying, take good heed. He says, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, should be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Here's what happens, is that if the word of God departs from you, if you begin to forget the counsels of God and your life gets careless in walking in obedience to God, your nearness to God, here's what happens. 
is that suddenly, as the word of God departs, something else will inevitably creep in and take its place. It never happens that you just fade away from God or slowly depart and forget the word and nothing else happens. I'm just not as sharp in the scripture as I once was. It doesn't work like that. It always happens that something else replaces what has departed. That's just the way it works. That's why he uses the word in verse 16, the word corrupt. He says, lest you corrupt yourselves. The word corrupt means to mix with the intent or with the outcome of compromising the purity. That's what it means to corrupt something. It's to mix the pure with something that is impure, and now it is corrupted. It is no longer the pure thing. And inevitably, when a person begins to drift away from the Lord, they're going to begin to give themselves to something else. Other concepts, other ideas, other sources of fulfillment or satisfaction, other pursuits and, you know, pleasures of life rather than to serve the true and the living God. Idolatry is always going to be the blight of someone who drifts away from the Lord spiritually. And so he gives them this warning, take heed to yourselves. If you forget, if it departs, the next step is going to be idolatry. You'll be driven to serve something other than the Lord. They knew this full well. They were coming out of Egypt. Egypt was the most idol-rich place on the planet in those days. They knew all about idols. That's why he says in verse 20, notice, he says, But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are this day. He calls Egypt an iron furnace. The iron furnace was used to remove the dross from a lump of gold. You would heat it up to molten heat, molten temperature, and then the impurities as they would come to the surface would be swept off. And God essentially is saying, you saw the fruit of idolatry in Egypt. You saw what a people looks like that serves something other than the true and the living God. And you saw the kind of life it led to and the kind of destiny it brought upon them. Think with me for one minute, what, how bad were things in Moab that the king of Moab could just send out an I am, a group text message to all the women in the land and say, hey, dress in scant clothing and just go in and seduce these Israeli men. And they said, okay. I mean, what kind of culture does that? That's what idolatry does. And this is what God's bringing to their attention is that if you serve something else, you're immediately going to start a decline, a downward spiral in your life of corruption to a point where, what are you? You've reduced yourself to nothing. You're an abomination. And so he says, God brought you out of that. You've come out of the iron furnace of Egypt. You've seen what that lifestyle does. So don't give yourself back to it. And then in verse 21, he says, look, and don't think, don't think for one minute that it's not going to happen to you. Watch this, verse 21. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swear that I should not go over Jordan and that I should not go in unto that good land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan, but you shall go over and possess that good land. Moses says, look, it happened to me. I'm not going into the land of promise twice because I disobeyed the word of God. So take heed to yourself. Don't forget. Don't let the principles, the precepts, the statutes, the commands, the ways of God, don't let them depart from you because you're on a downward slope. You're in a bad form, a bad way if you do. So warning number one, don't forget. Warning number two, be careful. Something else is going to creep in. And now warning number three in verse 23, he says this. And it's basically, these are the consequences. If you want to walk away from God, this is what you can expect. This is what's going to happen in your life. He says, take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and then make you a graven image Give yourself to idolatry, you know, the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. 
And then he says, verse 24, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. You say, wait a minute. A jealous God? Wait, is God sinning? Isn't envying, isn't jealousy a sin? And here it says that he's a jealous God. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? There is a righteous jealousy. What if my wife came home or I came home and my wife said, hey, you know, um, I was thinking, you're all right. But I was thinking maybe we could just get a couple of other guys in here and they could share your role. I mean, why not? I mean, two are better than one, right? I mean, so why don't we just do that? We'll just get a couple of other guys in here, and, and you guys can all be, you know, the men of the house. And, and, and we'll, I'll have my own little harem, you know, Georgia would say to me, you know. What would I say to that? I think that's a great idea. You know, no, obviously not. Why? Because, here's why. Because I am not going to share her love with anybody else. That, that I, I'm just not. That, that wouldn't be love. It would be something else, but it wouldn't be love. I, I'm not going to share that. And that is the sentiment with which God is saying to you that he's a jealous God. And what husband would do that? And yet, why would we expect God to share or, or, or expect God to let us share our love to him with something else? Lord, you know, I'm, I love you, but I'm just going to let half of my heart be for, for something else. You know, yeah, you saved me. You bled on the cross. You died for me. You know the number of hairs on my head. Your thoughts towards me are more in number than the sand that are on the seashore. You, you know the plans that are going to prosper me. You, you've done all this stuff for me. I know you love me, Lord, and I love you, but there's just some other things, Lord, that I, I you know, you, you understand, don't you? God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm a consuming fire. And here is the clincher, is that he's not jealous of us, He's jealous for us. You understand? See, I'm jealous for my kids. I'm not jealous of my kids. I don't, well, sometimes I have to admit, they do have it pretty good, you know. <laughs> but, but for the most part, I, I'm not jealous of them. I wouldn't want to trade places, but I'm jealous for them. I want the absolute best for them that they could have. I don't want to settle for second best in any area of their lives. I want what's best. And so when God says he's a consuming fire, a jealous God, it isn't that he's angry jealous, it's that he's passionate jealous. He loves them. And thus he wants the absolute very best for us that we could have. He says, I'm jealous. So here's what's going to happen. If you turn from me, if you forget my statutes, my principles, my precepts, my word, if you begin to let other things take the affection, the place that I'm to have, this is what you can expect to see happen in your life. It will happen all by itself. He says in verse 25, he says, when you shall beget children and children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land. Now notice that, that it doesn't happen overnight. That he's talking about many successive generations wherein this would take place over. And in our lives, it doesn't happen overnight. We don't turn from God in a single afternoon. It happens little by little as our fire, our devotion, our flame, our love towards God just by invisible degrees just changes ever so slightly until we find ourselves in a cooling routine, cooling in our love towards the Lord. When you beget children, then he says, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image, give yourself to idolatry or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, and this is number one, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but you shall utterly be destroyed. Here's number one. The first thing that you can expect to happen in your life is that you are going to begin to lose territory that you've previously taken. Territory that you've previously taken, you're going to watch it disappear. We talked last week about the promised land. You know, the things that God has, has laid before us and the battles that we fight to take those lands. But all of a sudden, in our affection towards God, you know, wanes a little bit. And here's what happens. We begin to notice that battles that we won a long time ago 
all of a sudden those fleshly tendencies begin to rise up in us. We begin to notice, you know, I, I told a lie today. I haven't lied. I don't, I mean, when's the last time I, I really told a, a lie? But today I lied. It, it came out of my mouth. I thought I was done with that. Why is that happening? I had gotten my eyes. I, I, I'd been so disciplined. That battle was gone. It was over. And, and now it just seems like my eyes, they're, they're wandering. I'm looking at things that I haven't looked at. And, and, and why is this happening? I, I thought this battle was over. I took this land. I claimed it by faith. I, I haven't had a craving for that in so long. That battle, it, it was done. It was over. God fixed that. Why am I losing this territory that I already... Well, listen, it could be that you've let the precepts, you've let God's word take a back seat. It's not what it once was. It's not in the forefront anymore. And you've begun to lose land that you've previously taken. Number two, he says in verse 27, he says, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations. And you shall be left few in number among the heathen, the Gentiles, whither the Lord shall lead you. There's going to be a scattering where there was once a solidarity, a wholesomeness, a, a, a tight-linked, unified purpose. Things are going to begin to be fragmented. The word scattered means confused. Confused means confused. Things were once fused. They were once tight. Life had purpose. It made sense. I knew where I was going. I knew where I had been. I knew what was ahead. And, 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 and things made sense, even though chaos was going on in every area. Yet there was this fusion. But all of a sudden, now life doesn't make sense like it did. I'm scattered. I, I see my kids and they're kind of going this way and I see my career and it's kind of going this way and I see the, you know, the family and the marriage and the church and the ministry that I once had and, and all of these things that were, there, everything was there. Now it's, it's, it's kind of, it's out there. Where is it? Hebrews chapter one, verse three. It says, he, Jesus, he holds all things together by the word of his power. If you want fusion in your life, if you want things to make sense, if you want to know where you're going and why and not lose focus or purpose, here's how. Stay in the word. Don't drift away. Don't let it depart. Don't forget. Keep yourself in the word of God. Not just reading, but hearkening to do that you might live and possess. And then number three in verse 28, he says, and there you shall serve God's, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And that is this, those things that crept into your life that replaced the devotion that you once had towards God, that to you were just, hey, these are just my easements. This is my relaxation time, or this is no big deal. All of a sudden, those things begin to govern you. You become a slave to your vices rather than your vices becoming a slave to you. You have to serve the thing that you allow, the thing that you give yourself to. And God says, I don't want you to go through that. I don't want you to lose territory. I don't want you to get confused and lose focus for your life. I don't want to see you toiling, serving something, giving mental energy and strength and time to something that you don't even like anymore. I don't want to see that happen in your life. And I know how to keep it from happening. Stay close to me. Obey what I've given you to do. I have good plans. I want to see you succeed, God says. You say, well, that's my life. You just described it. I've lost territory. I'm confused. I'm serving things I don't want to serve. What do I do? Good news for you, verse 29. He says, but if from thence... Thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if you seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if you turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. You turn one step towards the Lord, and he will meet you with an embrace that will blow your mind. 
and he will restore and renew unto you the things that he had done within your life. And he will reveal his love in a supernatural and living way that will change your life. Now in verse 32, he sums it up. He lands the plane, which I will also. He says, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven unto the other. He says, from the beginning of time, from the creation of man in any place on the planet, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is or hath been heard like it, did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as thou hast heard and live? Or hath God essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs and by wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Think about what God has done for you. You, tonight, here, listening, what has God done for you? Think about it. To, to be able to see your life spinning off into some black hole somewhere, lost, alienated from God, separated from eternal life, dying and lost in your sins. And yet God stepped into your life and he spoke in such a way that you could hear it and respond and be saved. And then you begin to realize as you walk with him for some time, you say, wait a minute, those temptations, those trials, those signs, those things that were happening to me, that was you, God. You were preparing the way. You were finding me all of that time. God found you and me. Why? He says, look, has it ever been heard of that God? Why? He says, unto you it was showed that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. Out of heaven, he made you to hear his voice, that he might instruct you. And upon earth, he has showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because the Lord loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive out nations from before thee, greater and mightier than thou, to bring thee in, to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. He brought you out of the world, out of that black hole that you were in, so that he could bring you in to all that he has planned for your life. Know therefore this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord he is God in heaven above, and upon earth beneath there is none else. And here's Moses' concluding thought as he wraps up this sermon. Here's what he is basically laying before the people and before us tonight by the Spirit of God. He's saying, who's got it better than you? Who's got it better than us? That God Almighty would reveal himself in a real and living way, put his love in our lives, lead us, have a plan, and also have the ability to carry out that plan. Who's got it better than us? Therefore, verse 40, he says, Thou shalt keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee forever. So the whole point of Moses' first sermon in prepping them to hear the statutes and judgments of God is to say, listen, listen to the words which are spoken to you and do them that you might live and that you might possess that which God has for your life. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's our wisdom it's our nearness, and it's our greatness, our elevation, and it's his will for our lives. Take heed to the things which you have heard, lest at any time you should let them 
today. Be people of the word. Give yourselves wholly to it. In Jesus' name, let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you for this exhortation, this clear-cut reminder of who we are and also what you want for our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take by your Holy Spirit and that you'd seal these things deep within us, that you would make us a wise and understanding people, that your nearness and your presence would be so real, that for any here, Lord, whose love has grown cold and they've grown distant, they've drawn back from the word, that tonight by the power of your spirit and through the purity of your love, you would draw them back. That tonight, Lord, if there's any here that would say, that's me, I'm the one that's in tribulation, that's lost my land, I've become confused, I'm serving idols, living low, Lord, I pray that tonight by your spirit you would draw that person, those people back to you. I ask that right now by your spirit, Lord, many prayers would be going up. Many meditations. I pray that right now your word would be speaking, that your love would be confirmed upon your people. And that you would make yourself known in this place. And I pray that as we sing this song, Lord, it would be so real that it would be our prayer, that it would be our life, and that you would take up your perfect plan upon our lives and lead us in the way that we should go. So take us, Lord, take us, the sheep of your flock, and do your will in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>